electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, Google on trial. An historic antitrust case for the Justice Department set to commence. Will it forever change? Big tech. A truce is reached in the great TV blackout of 23. But the war over pay TV, far from over. IPOs, they're back, baby. Or are they? Instacart and Arm delivering two wildly different signals ahead of their big debuts. How sweet it is for some smuckers gobbling up Hostess for billions. And you won't believe how much the investors that bought Hostess back from the dead stand to cash in. Plus, what happens when the IRS embraces artificial intelligence? Well, some wealthy taxpayers may be about to find out. And it's Make It Mondays. We're going to meet a dog grooming entrepreneur who's turned a couple of scissors and a clipper into a million-dollar business and some crazy-looking pooches. All that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here on Last Call. We're going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, time running out before a major strike could shake the U.S. economy and Detroit to its core. Negotiations between the United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's Big Three are coming down to the wire. Both sides have just three days before 146,000 workers could walk out on GM, Ford and Stellantis. That could be devastating for Detroit and maybe even the American economy. According to consulting firm Anderson Economic Group, just a 10-day strike by all three automakers could cost the country's GDP more than $5.5 billion and likely push Michigan's economy into a recession. So why is Wall Street seemingly ignoring what could be a looming crisis? Well, Fundstrat's Tom Lee may have an answer. In a new note to clients, he writes, there have been about 20 major labor strikes since 1919. Of those, only five had stocks fall more than 2% the following month. The last one, the UPS strike that happened 26 years ago. So could this potential UAW strike be a minor blip to the markets and the broader economy or have a much bigger impact? Let's talk about all sides of it, where we are, where we're going, what the impact may be. With Solus, Alternative Asset Management Chief Strategist Dan Greenhouse, and CNBC auto reporter Michael Whalen, who is in Detroit, where he lives. He knows what's going on. Mike, we'll start with you. Where do we stand in these negotiations? And if you had to handicap it, what is the likelihood of a strike? I need to count down like that in my office, honestly, because uh, I've been on the phone all day on text messages and just calling people and talking about this. And things move slowly over the weekend, and we kind of hit today. And everyone's in the heat of it. We are kind of facing that deadline that you showed up there. And they are going back and forth with all these contracts right now. And we're going to wait and see whether or not we hit a strike for 146,000 members. Or if we take out one, two, or all three of the automakers, 
or they could also be targeted strikes. So, I mean, if I had to put something on it right now, everyone I've talked with is largely expecting a strike. Okay, I'm going to get to that. Just I want to get to that in just one second about the targeted aspect of it. But before that, we know that the automakers have have made proposals correct to the UAW. The UAW, as we've shown, we interviewed Sean Fain. We know what they want. So it does at least appear the two sides are going back and forth. But from what I've read from you and others, Mike, is that they are they appear also to be wildly apart. Yeah, one of the union's recent proposals was for a 36 percent pay increase. That's down from their 40 percent. And the automakers are at 10, 14 percent and I believe 16 percent right now. So they are still very far apart at this point in time. What it's really going to come down to is how much the will, how much the union and its president, Sean Fain, who you mentioned, is willing to kind of compromise and how much they're willing to give in. These are negotiations. There should be things going back and forth. Just where everyone lands is going to be really up in the air, and it continues to be. And we're expecting to go right up until the deadline to hear if we're going to have a walkout or maybe if we have a deal. And you mentioned this targeted idea because there are 146,000 UAW members roughly under the contract. I'll get to Dan in just one second, but Mike, the idea that all 146,000 would walk out of all the big three, I don't believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that has ever happened. What is more likely to happen, as I understand it, again, add your take, is that if there is a walkout, it may be at specific plants only, say, a be- you know, something Belvedere with, with Stellantis, something in Michigan with Ford, et cetera. 146,000 auto workers walking out. Um, it would be unprecedented for all three. The union had struck GM, let's say, four years ago. That was for a 40-day strike. They had another one 46 days back in uh, against Ford. And, I mean, decades ago and decades ago, the strikes were a very big part of the union's way to gain contracts. They have been less in recent contracts. But, yes, they could go a targeted route, which would mean that they would, let's say, hit a engine plant or another plant over local issues, and then that would have a ripple effect on the larger plants. Having said that, though, there are also some state unemployment benefits and strike pay that kind of get involved, and it gets into a kind of a legal mess if you do start doing targeted strikes and how it, how everyone will get paid. Yeah. Mike, thank you. Dan, I want to go to the market side now. We just we bring it back up, guys. We showed stocks. Uh, GM is down a couple percent this year. Ford's up 10%. Stellantis which, by the way, is the unfortunate name of, you know, Chrysler Dodge Jeep. It sounds more like an island in the Bahamas than a car company. But that said, the market doesn't seem like it cares, Dan. And I just wonder why. Yeah, I I think that's probably right. To to back up the point that was just made, I think most people that I talk to on this topic think a strike is all but a done deal, considering how far apart they are. Uh, At the same time, I mean, listen, I I agree that it, it... at the end of the day, the stocks are basically at their lows. And so I, I don't know that we can say for sure that investors don't care. But I also think at this point, given this, the spread between the asks of the two sides, I think everyone has sort of baked in a, a, a month or a two-month-long strike. And the question is, like we saw with the writers, uh, which, which began striking back in May, and everybody thought it would be wrapped up by the summer, and now it looks like it won't happen until the end of the year, does this drag on for much longer than people anticipate, in which case you're going to see that it's not in the price. Yeah, and, and Tom Lee's note is excellent as always, but I did go back to the last GM strike in 2019. 
Uh, it was a couple of weeks long, and basically from the beginning of it to the end of it, Dan, the S&P 500 fell 7%. Of course, obviously yeah. it recovered there, and, so, and there was other stuff going on. So I'm not attributing that decline just to the GM strike. I wouldn't do that. But I think sure. when we talk about this kind of economic impact and also and also when we want these workers to get what they deserve, the potential inflationary impact, not just of this, but of UPS, of the pilots, well, we of can, everybody demanding more money. What does the Fed do? Sure. We can have a separate conversation about the word deserve. But um, the one issue I would take with the, the research that you're citing from Tom, uh, who I'm sure has done who's done all the, the data mining and analysis properly, it's just that it's a different environment now, as we saw with UPS, for instance, uh, and, and other recent strike activities or labor disputes. I don't know that I can look at previous instances and say, OK, well, X, then Y, because the, the, the labor clearly feels emboldened now, correct or incorrect, largely correct. But labor clearly feels emboldened right now to strike harder for longer, to demand more onerous terms. You know, again, we mentioned before, this, the spread is enormous. Uh, the three car companies are offering somewhere between, let's call it 14 and 16 percent. They want 40. They're down to 36 percent wage increases now. Um, I, I don't know that previous instances are are totally applicable because, again, the circumstances are so different. But you got my, my Dan, you got my inflationary point, though. And again, sure. not going into the deserve aspect or whatever of it is, but we're talking about inflation. We know that wages are a big part of inflation, right? They raise the prices of goods. Yep. Also, car prices used and new a big part of the Fed's inflation data. Again, we get the pilots getting big raises, UPS getting big raises. The UAW is going to get some kind of raise that's probably going to be fairly sizable. That, that's going to bring the price of cars up. They're already elevated, cost of flights up. You wonder, does the Fed have any ability to control that side of the inflationary story? Yeah, well, two things. First, for new, I mean, new cars now are almost fifty thousand dollars in price. Pre-COVID, they were call it uh, under forty thousand. Right, so you've had a pretty it's stupid. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's well. Listen, I, I, we could we could run down the list of things that are increasing price uh, some from pre-COVID. But with respect to the Fed, I mean, the answer always is, of course, they could raise rates tomorrow to twenty five percent, and that would be the end of that. But but the wage, what you're alluding to is the wage price spiral idea, the idea that all these companies are demanding higher wages. I'm sorry, all these labor unions are demanding higher wages because of the increase in prices. They're going to get higher wages, which is going to further fuel price increases. Um, I, I guess there's a risk of that. But I always in this topic, I always fall back on the relatively low unionization rate today as compared yeah. to 10, 20, 30 years ago. There's just far fewer private sector union members today than there is then, which is a, a powerful bulwark, if you will, against a, a so-called wage price spiral. Yeah. Well, the good news, Mike and Dan, we're going to let you go. The good news, Mike, is I guess is that um, maybe someday soon we'll be paying $95,000 for an electrified Mustang that goes 300 miles. Mike and Dan, thank you very much. Do appreciate that. All right. In the meantime, folks, speaking of the markets, here's what happened to your money today. And we did have some green on the screen despite all this going on. The Nasdaq didn't care. It's up 1.1% today. The Dow up a little bit here. Couple day win streak for the macro markets. Not too bad considering September, as you know, usually the worst month of the year. All right, inside the market, speaking of EVs, the big winner of the day was Tesla. We'll get more on that move and why later on. The biggest loser was RTX. That is formerly the defense contractor known as Raytheon, down just under 8%. All right, we're just getting started on last call. Up next, an antitrust trial for the ages. The DOJ kicking off a landmark case against Google. 
and it could reshape tech as we know it. Plus, a U.S. court stunning ruling against the White House and its effort to get pandemic content moderated on social media. They cite threats and intimidation. Also, Disney and Charter reaching a blackout ceasefire, but the peace in TV land will not last for long. We'll tell you why. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And we begin with Oracle having some trouble seeing the future. Oracle's license and hardware revenue fell short of expectations and light revenue guidance for the current quarter, disappointing investors. But Oracle also touting a notable lineup of fresh AI cloud contracts. Chairman Larry Ellison saying, quote, AI development companies have signed contracts to buy more than four billion of capacity in Oracle's Gen 2 cloud. Ellison detailed one of them during the earnings call just a short time ago. I'm also very pleased to announce that XAI has signed a contract to do training in Oracle's Gen 2 cloud. XAI, remember, is Elon Musk's new artificial intelligence company, but still that not enough for investors in Oracle. That stock is down 9% right now after hours. Ouch. All right, next up and staying on tech, the DOJ holding the first antitrust trial in more than 20 years, and it is against Google. CBC's senior Washington correspondent, Eamon Javers, joining us now with more. Eamon. Hey there, Brian. This is going to be the tech trial of the century so far anyway. We haven't seen a heavyweight antitrust battle like this since the U.S. Department of Justice took on Microsoft in a titanic struggle between government and industry back in the late 1990s. The trial is going to be months long and full of highly technical testimony, but at its core will be a set of simple but competing arguments. The U.S. Department of Justice will argue that Google built its 90% search market share by violating the law, spending many billions of dollars a year to become the default search engine on many devices and squashing competition. Now, lawyers for Google will argue that instead, the company built its dominance simply by making a better product that customers and business partners chose on their own. And anyway, they'll say, the government is defining the competition scope too narrowly. Google, they will argue, doesn't just compete with smaller search engines like Bing and DuckDuckGo. It actually competes against any place where people are searching for information. So think, Amazon searched for products to buy, or Twitter, now X, to search for news. 
The two sides are bringing enormous assets to bear in the case with the DOJ authorizing additional resources and Google hiring three outside law firms to help it prepare for the case. Now, we do expect Google CEO Sundar Pichai to testify at some point, although witness lists have not been released yet. Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page not expected to take the stand in this case. We also expect Google's partners to be drawn into the fray. Apple executives are expected to be among the witnesses, although likely not CEO Tim Cook himself. This trial is not expected to be over until sometime in 2024, Brian, and this is just the first phase to establish whether Google has liability under antitrust law. If the court finds that it does have that liability, then they go to a second phase to figure out what the remedy might be to change the way that Google does business, Brian. Wow. Eamon Jabbers, that is a big one. Thank you very much. All right, for a reaction on this and another big tech topic, let's bring in former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock. Uh, Congresswoman Comstock, good to have you on the program. Your take on, on this lawsuit, because this is, this is a big deal, and how this shakes out could also sort of portend, $10 word there, about how it treats Amazon. Well, this is really a radical case that would overhaul U.S. antitrust law, um, bringing it more in the direction of the European Union. And uh, antitrust law is supposed to help consumers, uh, not competitors. And you've had this administration lose cases so far. You know, there's been five cases. The um, uh, U.S. Chamber noted it in a memo recently, five cases that the Justice Department lost. You've also had uh, Lena Khan at the FTC losing cases because they're trying to uh, propose a whole new antitrust law that focuses on competitors instead of following what has been the consumer model, which both Republicans and Democrats have followed over the past 40 years, not only during the Reagan and the Bush years, but also during the Clinton and the Obama years. And this is why, I mean, Google has been a very successful company due to its innovation and product quality. And, you know, that's why they've been successful and succeeded in what has been a very competitive market. There is a lot of other competitors out there. Mm -hmm. And if we were to adopt the European Union model, we would, you know, we wouldn't be as competitive. And these days, our main competitor is China. And it would be very dangerous if we were to adopt this European Union model and let China get the better of us. You used the word radical. You said it's a radical shift because in some cases, basically what we're talking about here is that, you know, if you use Safari on your MacBook, Google is the default search engine, but it takes about two seconds and a couple of clicks to exactly. switch that over to Bing or, or DuckDuckGo. Would you say it's a radical approach or even a radical FTC? Well, it is. And uh, they've been this is why they've been losing cases, because instead of going to Congress and trying to change the law and let's face it, um, there have been people who've been trying to change the law. They've been putting bills forward and they've been failing with those bills. And, uh, you know, they, they haven't gotten anywhere. And also they haven't been getting anywhere with their cases in court. So now they are trying to this method that they're doing, like putting forward cases 
wasting resources when, you know, the government, it's overreach. And it's also they're wasting government mm-hmm. resources when we don't need to be told how to pick our, um, you know, how we use the Internet. You know, we have, you know, it's been a very competitive market. We, you know, we pick our, uh, you know, browsers. And oftentimes we have multiple browsers on our phone and we have 50 apps on our phones. And we and if we don't like yeah. a particular one, we can take it off. Congresswoman, I want to shift gears for a second. Late last week, a federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, New Orleans, ruled that the White House most likely overstepped First Amendment protections by urging social media platforms to censor false or misleading content about the pandemic. The judges wrote that both the White House and the Surgeon General's office, quote, likely coerced the platforms to make their moderation decisions by way of intimidating messages and threats of adverse consequences and significantly encouraged the platform's decisions by commandeering their decision-making process. Now, the White House defending its interactions with social media platforms, saying it was a lot of just bad information, misinformation that was being spread. What is your take on this appeals court ruling? Do we need, in your mind, better protections in place to avoid the government and big tech sort of combining or colluding to, to know what we see, or... Is that what we need necessarily, particularly when there's a deadly pandemic, to make sure that we have accurate information? Well, I think that particular case has already, you know, another court has already curtailed it a bit. I think you're going to see that go up to the Supreme Court. Obviously, we don't want to have government officials ever limiting our free speech rights, individuals, or the rights of companies to be able to make their decisions about speech. Again, Congress has weighed in on some of these issues. Sometimes you have people on the left want to have, you know, more cracking down on speech by companies. And then sometimes you have people on the right who Mm -hmm. don't like this and have tried to regulate it. I think you are going, I think you need to have some humility by Congress on the difficulties of this. We want to always protect First Amendment rights. But I think you need to have a lot more transparency from the government. So I think as we go certainly into an election, if you know the the pandemic certainly presented a lot of difficulties, I think we need to have a lot more transparency, a lot more humility from government officials. And when you put AI into this, you're going to have a lot more difficulties that both Congress and courts are going to have to address in the future. In some cases, leaked emails have shown basically threatening the tech companies with changing regulations if they did not... Uh, yeah. d- they did not adhere to it. I don't care what your political bent is. We got to go, Congresswoman. But if you're, whatever your political bent is, just picture this being done by a different administration in a different yeah. party about a yeah. different topic. Yes. And I think you could see outrage from from both sides. Yeah. The political we do spectrum. not want government yeah. involved telling companies or in individuals what they can say. <laughs> Barbara Comstock, really appreciate your views. Thank you very much. All right, on deck, a blackout truce reached between Disney and Charter, but the pay TV war may be far from over. Plus, breaking developments on McDonald's and its ongoing civil rights audit. That's ahead. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back. Let's get to our last call watch list. First up, what else is Apple? It's going to be taking plenty of oxygen tomorrow. They're expected to introduce their newest iPhone. Among other things, the iPhone 15 is anticipated, we never really know, to come with a new charging port compatible with USB-C. What does that mean? Well, if you have an iPad, you use one type of charger. And if you got an iPhone, you use another type of charger. You spend $1,000 buying a bunch of chargers for the phone. Now you get to throw those out or buy an adapter to use the new adapter iPhones make up about half of Apple's total global revenue. Apple stock, by the way, is having a great year. It's up nearly 40%. Also grabbing our attention today, COVID vaccine stocks. Pfizer and Moderna had their respective COVID vaccine boosters approved by the FDA. But that in turn brought a big hit to Novavax shares. It says its booster is still under FDA review. For Pfizer and Moderna, this will be the first time the doses will not be covered by taxpayer money. The pharmaceutical giants will sell them to you, and they intend to price them at more than $100 each per dose. Also on our watch list, Tesla. Morgan Stanley analysts raising their price target on Tesla to 400 bucks, citing Tesla's Dojo supercomputer, which I have no idea what that is because it's still in development. Tesla's currently feeding vast amounts of data into Dojo to help train itself driving technology. Morgan Stanley expects Dojo to be a massive boon to Tesla shares, stock up 10% today. Speaking of Tesla, by the way, tune in tomorrow morning on Squawk Box at 8 a.m. Walter Isaacson out with a giant new biography on Elon Musk, which is called Elon Musk. We'll sit down for an exclusive interview with the Squawk gang. That is a big deal. 8 a.m. tomorrow on Squawk. Don't miss it. All right, in the meantime, some good news for sports and Disney fans. Disney and Charter, the company that operates Spectrum Cable for millions of Americans, announcing they have reached a deal ending a fight that had been going on since late August. The deal coming just hours before Monday Night Football set to air on ESPN, assuming (laughs) the monsoon that hit about an hour ago does not postpone it. We shall see. The agreement between the two companies allows Spectrum customers access to the ad-supported Disney Plus app, as well as ESPN Plus and the new ESPN streaming service when that launches. Disney stock actually seeing a dip following the news, but it did end the day in the green, while Charter shares actually seeing a pop. So who was the ultimate winner in this battle? Is there a winner? Let's ask Tom Rogers, first president of NBC Cable, founder of this network, former CEO of TiVo, and currently editor-at-large of Newsweek. Tom, good to have you on. You're the perfect guy for this. Was, was there any winner? Well, I'd like to think that the consumer was the winner here. Uh, I must say that Charter was the one most championing the consumer issues. So in some sense, I guess you'd say Charter won. There's a lot we don't know about the economics of the deal, and that really has a lot to do with figuring out here Uh, just how much of a win that was. Uh, One of the key things Charter was looking for was to be able to sell thinner packages of channels that wouldn't include ESPN so that great fans of this show 
who might not be sports fans would have far more flexibility to buy channels as a package without them being as, as expensive because ESPN and the sports content was in there. It's unclear just how much more flexibility Charter got to do that than they had before. The answer to that has a lot to do with the overall economics. Yeah, that so-called skinny bundle. And give our viewers an idea. And we're not picking on Disney. They built a heck of a business, ESPN. We watch it all the time, especially if you're a college football fan. Give us an idea as to how much money an average cable customer may be paying a Disney for an ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, et cetera? Well, on average, when you put all the Disney channels together, ESPN, ABC, FX, National Geo, uh, there's probably, uh, depending on the cable operator, anywhere from $16 to $19 a month of programming cost in that $100-plus bundle that cable is selling the consumer. Now, Charter had a big win in a bunch of lesser Disney channels, Disney Junior, uh, some of the lesser Nat Geo channels, Freeform. They can now drop. That's going to be a revenue hit to Disney. Um, the big change here is about how streaming services can now be packaged in with the cable bundle. Uh, Charter was looking to do that with uh, the, the, the streaming packages uh, without having to pay anything. They will have to pay some kind of wholesale fee. Again, we don't know how much. It's a dip, deeply discounted fee, I'm sure, relative to the retail price for consumers. And that can now be bundled into certain packages of, of mm -hmm. charter spectrum channels. ESPN Plus will be in there for free. So there'll be more sports programming, access to the streaming services this way. There's also agreement that yeah. charter, as a, as a seller of broadband, will market the Disney services, and that's a win-win for both. So there are wins and losses for both here. Yeah, uh, getting that ESPN Plus in the Spectrum package, that could be a game changer. We'll find out. Tom Rogers, always great to have your views. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Always, always. All right, well, from the media to McDonald's, the fast food giant is now set to begin focus groups with McDonald's owners as part of a civil rights audit. Kate Rogers has more on this. Kate. Hey there, Brian. McDonald's will begin virtual focus groups with some of its owner operators as part of an ongoing civil rights audit, according to a memo to franchisees that we viewed. McDonald's retained law firm Wilmer Hale to conduct the audit, which aims to determine whether the company's policies have an adverse impact on its U.S. stakeholders, employees, franchisees, suppliers, and customers. It came after a close vote by shareholders at its 2022 meeting, approving a proposal by SOC Investment Group to hold an audit. The firm will partner with perception strategies, which will, quote, conduct a climate and belonging assessment to gain deeper insights into the experience of our U.S. owner operators, the memo said. The assessment will involve inviting randomly selected franchisees to participate in one hour virtual focus groups of 12. The note also assured owners that neither McDonald's nor anyone employed by the company would participate in the group or the selection process, 
which is voluntary. Identities will not be shared with the company. An owner told CNBC that some franchisees were expressing concern about those 12-person panels and potential retaliation by the company. McDonald's says it has high corporate governance standards and a long history of being responsive to shareholders and looks forward to reviewing the audit, which has been in process since last year. Now, other major companies, including Citi, Starbucks, and Airbnb, have undertaken civil rights audits in recent years. And last year, Apple and Amazon shareholders also approved proposals, Brian, for similar assessments. Back over to you. Important story there. Kate Rogers, thank you. All right, still ahead. Snack cakes made of gold. Smuckers buying hostess for billions. How much one investor may have made on the deal? It is your RBI. Plus, are the IPO floodgates about to open? We'll ask tech billionaire Vinod Kozla in an exclusive sit-down. That's next. First RBI of the week is a sweet one because we have another big deal in big food, and this time it is jelly sidling up next to a cupcake. JM Smuckers buying Hostess brands for $5.6 billion. Now, obviously, that is sending Hostess stock. The ticker is twink soaring. And while some on Wall Street are questioning why Smucker would pay so much, we know this. The deal is going to make one guy really rich. He's already rich, but now he's going to get even richer. Here's why. Dealmaker Dean Metropolis and a team of investors bought Hostess out of bankruptcy in 2012 for $410 million. They threw in another $350 million into the deal, and then when Hostess went public again via a SPAC, they invested another $350 to $375 million into the company. So all in, Metropolis and investor groups seem to put in about $1.1 to $1.2 billion into Hostess. And now... They sold it for $5.6 billion, implying a profit of about $4.4 billion on the sale. Wow. Now, some latest reports suggest that Metropolis owns about 40% of Hostess. So just for fun, super rough for the back of the envelope math, it is possible Metropolis and his team made more than a billion bucks on the deal. Again, these are rough estimates based on what we know, public data, whatever. But whatever the actual number is, we know this for a fact. Whatever they made is a lot. And we also know this for sure. When it comes to business, Dean Metropolis is no ding-dong. Random and kind of sad. Sorry. All right, in the meantime, from buyouts to IPOs, Instacart giving potential investors a surprise that is slashing... Its valuation ahead of its planned public debut down to between $8.6 and $9.3 billion. What does that mean? Well, during the thick of the pandemic, when everybody was getting everything delivered, Instacart was valued at $39 billion. Now, meantime, the highly anticipated ARM IPO has reportedly been oversubscribed by 10x. Interest so hot that bankers plan to close orders for ARM stock tomorrow. Who is Arm? Well, it is a massive semiconductor company, and it could be valued at about $54 billion. So one down, one up. What do these two stories say about hopes for an IPO market comeback? Julia Borston's out west, sitting down exclusively with tech venture capitalist and co-founder of Sun Microsystems, Vinod Kosla. Julia, take it away. Thanks so much, Brian. And Vinod Kosla, a legendary investor at Kosla Ventures, thank you so much for joining us here today.
Great to be here. So, Vinod, you were one of the earliest investors in OpenAI. You put in a $50 million check back in 2019. What is your outlook now on AI valuations and which companies are best positioned to succeed in the AI space over the long run? Well, AI will have a large impact on society and it's a 20-year run. So a lot of value to be created. But there is also a lot of hype and most valuations are overhyped. So I would say most are too high. The ones, and one has to pick really, really carefully. Most companies will lose money, but more money will be made than lost. For the companies that, that you're betting on now to succeed, how essential is it for them to partner with the tech giants? Obviously, OpenAI is this big partnership with Microsoft. Is it possible for earlier stage AI investments to succeed without a major tech giant ally? I do believe it is. I do believe they can help themselves by partnering with various giants, but it's not the only way to build a successful company. So I understand that you just came out with a new thesis on regulation in China, especially when it comes to this question of AI. What's your perspective on AI regulation and the potential ripple effect? My view is we have to be very, very careful. The much bigger danger is not AI as a dangerous thing, though it, there is some dangers there, much bigger danger is powerful AI in Chinese hands. And between the US and China, or Western nations and China, whoever wins the AI race will win the techno-economic war and hence global influence. I think the far biggest danger, far big, the big danger we have is China and with a powerful tool like better AI. But are you saying that there shouldn't be any AI regulation or just needs to be careful? I think we need to be careful. I think some regulations are always needed, but the biggest danger we have is falling behind China in AI. Interesting, and I want to make sure to ask you about the uh, the IPO market. You were an investor in Instacart. We were just talking before they came to us about how the Instacart valuation has come down dramatically. Do you think the IPO market is reopening now? Is this the start of a new uh, a new open window for IPOs? I do see a lot of interest in IPOs uh, recently. Now, valuations will go up and down. It's very hard to predict. But when you're an early investor, we were the first investor in Instacart at a $10 million valuation. So whether it's 10 billion or 20 billion, it really doesn't matter. And in fact, whatever number it comes out at will change a year from now and two years from now. So taking the long-term, investing in the right things is more important than the short-term perturbations and valuation. So speaking of investing in the right things, you're making a lot of bets in the green tech space. What are the companies that you think are going to be successful over the long term when it comes to green tech, um, especially in light of some concerns now about ESG investing as a whole? Well, ESG investing has nothing to do with a company like Lanzatech. Sustainable aviation fuel is a massive multi-hundred billion dollar market. And the first company to beat it, and Jennifer Holmgren, the CEO, is fabulous at it. Will, uh, will do really, really well. It's a public stock, and I just visited their Ghent facility in Belgium two weeks ago, where they're just starting up that facility. Uh, so if you bet, bet on the right markets long-term, short-term perturbations don't matter, and Lanzatech is a great example of that. We are also investors in QuantumScape, so batteries for cars is a huge market. Uh, so very, very promising area. I'm, of course, invested in Convalfusion, which is a 
really exciting market. Again, multi-trillion dollar market. These are markets larger than Google's market. So if you're successful, then the payoff is large, and those are the kinds of bets we like to place. And a long-term long -term perspective. Thank you so much for sharing um, your views with us on green energy, AI, and more. Uh, Vino Kosla, thanks so much for talking to us here today. Thank you. Brian, I'm going to send it back over to you. And Julia, thanks for bringing it to us. Appreciate it. All right, coming up here on Last Call, forget 87,000 new agents. While the IRS is tapping AI to make sure rich taxpayers don't get away with any shenanigans. All right, welcome back. The IRS getting in on the artificial intelligence game. Everyone's favorite government agency is using some of the $80 billion it received in new funding to employ new AI technology to catch wealthy tax cheats. CBC Wealth Editor Robert Frank is here with more on the story. Robert, all right, a lot we don't know, but what do we do know and how exactly does this work? Well, the IRS calling this a sweeping historical effort to restore fairness to the tax system. Brian, you and I know that means auditing the wealthy, and they're going to use AI for this. Now, they wouldn't tell us sort of which companies they're working with. They have a lot of data scientists that they are hiring. They're also using outside vendors to generate AI. And what they're going to do is they're going to take the 75 largest partnerships in America, each with, with assets of over $10 billion dollars, Basically, you use AI to attack those returns, look through many of the partnerships to find out what patterns suggest tax evasion and income misrepresentation. So th these are things that it would take a person or people a long time to do. As you know, these are the most complex returns, these partnerships, these escorts, these pass-throughs. We're talking about hedge funds. We're talking about law firms. We're talking about very complex real estate partnerships. AI can sift through all that, find the red flags, find the discrepancies, the inconsistencies that then an auditor can look at and say, yeah, this is wrong. All right. Yeah. How will this target people? We say wealthy or super wealthy or uber wealthy. Dean Metropolis, for example, <laughs> who just got richer. You just probably heard the RBI. Who are they going after specifically? Yeah. And they're using AI to do that as well, to find the returns that are the largest partnerships, the, the 1,600 millionaire earners who, who owe at least $250,000 in taxes to go collect that. So it's really finding, using AI to find those top earners, those biggest partnerships, rather than having a, a person do that and then go get the money. Because Brian, you know, as Willie Sutton said, that's where the money is. Those at the very top using AI to find them. And some of them probably invested in AI, which will now then go after them. Robert Frank, thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> exactly. All right. Coming up, it is Make It Monday. We're going to meet an entrepreneur who gets not only creative with canines, we're going to hear how he turned his passion for dog grooming into a million-dollar career. Look at that pooch. All right, welcome back to Last Call. If it's Monday, it means it's Make It Monday. And tonight we're going to meet Gabriel Feitosa. He is the owner of a dog grooming salon in San Diego, California, where he and his employees turn animals into art. People fly from everywhere 
to get their dog done. What I do brings so much joy into people's lives and into dogs' lives as well. I am Gabriel Feitosa, I am 31 years old. I'm the owner of Gabriel Feitosa Grooming Salon in San Diego, California, and my shop brought in $1.3 million last year. We groom about 20 dogs a day, which is say 120 dogs a week. We make about 20 transformational grooms a month. So his name is Rusty. He's gonna be half leopard and half tiger. My transformational haircuts obviously change from size of the dogs and how intricate the haircut is. It ranges from $500 to $1,200. The clients that want the dogs transformed, they have all their unique stories. Sometimes it's because it's an event coming up. I have, I've done dogs for children with disabilities. We've done therapy dogs that visit hospitals. I grew up in Brazil. When I was about 12 years old, I remember taking my sister's dog to the grooming shop, and I just thought what the lady did was amazing. Eventually, I dropped out of school to pursue dog grooming. I came to the U.S. with two scissors and a, and a clipper. This salon is a dream for me. I always wanted to work in a place where I felt acknowledged as an artist and a professional. If grooming dogs is the most random thing, but that's what you love doing and you do it to the fullest and the hardest you can, that can actually happen. And the aforementioned Gabriel Feitosa joins us now. Gabriel, cool stuff. All right, quick question. We saw and we got some more video. What's the craziest request that you've gotten so far? I get crazy requests all the time. I think the craziest one that I've ever done, I've done a dog to look like a huge dragon. But I think the one that was the most impressive is when I made a dog to look like a leopard. It was a pit bull and it looked kind of real. It looked kind of scary. So I really love that one also. Yeah, we're, I mean, it looks like a stuffed animal, the one we're showing. There's, there's, one, your, yeah. <laughs> there's your leopard pit bull. We had a fluffy... <laughs> Tiger, cheetah, just before that as well. Yeah. What's the demand like? Listen, I have two dogs, and trying to get any groomer yes. is nearly impossible. What is your demand like, particularly because you are doing such custom grooming? Yeah, the demand is really high. We get requests every day for everywhere in the country to do crazy transformations. There's people that come to support animals for children with disabilities. This dog that you guys saw in the segment that has a heart, the owner wanted to celebrate that she beat a breast cancer. So we have a lot of cool stories and people fly from everywhere and usually have a lot of opportunity. I know, listen, San Diego is the, I, I grew up partly in San Diego. I love it. It's a unique spot. There's a lot of money down there. How transferable is your business to other parts of America? Are you going to, or have you already expanded? I am looking forward to expand my business to a major city. And I think my next goal is to have a store in LA. I also want to, create online courses to teach groomers across the country how to do what I do safely with the right products in the right way, the way, doing a way that the dog is comfortable. So I'm also working on some online courses right now. Hardest dog to groom is? Uh, and, chow, don't chow. Say, and don't say a mean one. <laughs> don't say a mean one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, chow chows can, can be mean, and that's why I said that. <laughs> like, is there a breed you're like, no. No, I, I've got a, everybody has doodles. I've got a doodle. I mean, her fur is like, you can't even, just want to let it grow. Yeah, no, doodles, doodles, doodles are great. I think I like grooming every dog. It all depends on if the person maintains them, you know, it keeps them up to date with their grooming. Every dog can be difficult. Every dog can be easy. It's just about the sensitizing them, bringing them soon enough 
to get groomed so they get used to it and enjoy the process. And then everything turns out okay. Yeah, I love it. Let's bring, before we, we're going to say goodbye, but let's flash those dogs up on the screen again, guys, if we can. The leopard bull. Look at that dog. Uh, the, the, the other one before that, that the, the, the orange tiger fluffy doodle <laughs> thing. It was great. Gabriel Fertosa, obrigado. We appreciate you coming on the program. Good, all right, and, and, and best of luck. Thanks for joining us. Be well. All right, folks. Bye-bye. Thank you. What better way to go than leaving you with that? We'll see you on Last Call tomorrow. Have a great night. Be well. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.